following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. A threshing floor was not the safest of places for a young woman to be. It was a hard-packed floor and the harvested grain would be ground and then tossed into the air and separating the grain from the holes. The threshing floor was a place of hard work. It was also a place of not-so-secret immoral activity. But it was the place that God continued to orchestrate his redemption plan for a family, for a nation, and ultimately for every believer. Redeemer, redemption, is a huge theme in Ruth. Uh, Redeemer is seen 21 times Uh, We see the plan of redemption in Ruth. Ruth gives God's plan of redemption for his people. And ultimately it points us to Christ and to his work. Now Ruth's story takes us to uh, different places. We started in Moab and a man named Elimelech had uh, left Israel with his wife Naomi and not trusting God's provision, they decided to go to Moab where they could find food And while there, Elimelech and his two sons die. The two sons had taken Moabite wives. And now you have not just three deaths, but three widows. What we saw in chapter 1 is that God showed his people extraordinary kindness in their extreme need. If you're a believer today, I'm sure you've seen God do that for you. Where God has shown you extraordinary kindness. In chapter 2, we were taken to the fields of Bethlehem. Ruth had come back and committed herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, She stuck to her, and she's in the fields gleaning. She's poor. She needs to make ends meet for the family, and so she goes and picks up grain that's left for those in need. We see God providentially provide. We We see that things don't happen by chance, and I'm sure you've seen that in your life as well, that God has his hand, sometimes his hidden hand, in the background moving things, and you see as you go along, wow, God orchestrates orchestrates my life and the events that goes on. Well, now you get to chapter 3, and you're at the threshing floor. And at the threshing floor, you see a godly plan for a a worthy woman. Here's a dangerous place that's usually used not just for harvesting and for getting grain ready, but for immoral purposes. And here is the place that we see that God inspires faith that risks. God inspires faith that risks. We know from the Bible that without risk, faith doesn't exist. Faith, Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 tells us, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and that by faith, the people of old received their commendation from God. We see that God gives and blesses faith. In Hebrews eleven six, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. That everyone who comes to him, whoever wants to draw near to God and and have salvation must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. James tells us that faith without works is dead. Faith acts. Faith risks. If you have faith, if you have the root of faith, that there will be the fruit of works based on that faith. Faith risks. And and what we see first in this passage, in this chapter 3 of Ruth, really act 3 with several scenes, we see 
Naomi makes a risky plan. She risks in her faith. She hatches this risky plan. Now, what has happened to get her to this point? Well, Ruth had taken initiative to go and glean in the fields. Boaz has provided food, but Naomi's thinking, we need more than grain. We need a long-term solution to our problem. Our family is hanging by a spiderweb-thin thread, and it's in danger of extinction. Ruth comes back from the fields loaded down with grain and Naomi must have been thinking, where might this lead? Where is this going? And Naomi even at the time tells Ruth, you stay with Boaz's workers. This is good. Boaz, one of their kinsmen redeemers, a man with a special God-given responsibility um, to help this family hang him by a thread. So despite all the bitter things that Naomi has experienced, uh, the Lord had not stopped showing kindness to her. I'm sure you've seen that in your life as well, where you go through times, but you know that God is kind. You know that God is good. And, and Yahweh's generous favor is upon Naomi. And it gives her renewed hope. You know how that happens. You see evidence of God's kindness in your life, and you have renewed hope. And suddenly, the future doesn't seem so bleak to Naomi. She's still a widow. She still lost her husband. She still lost two sons. She, she's still poor. Life is still hard. But what a difference seeing the hand of God in your life can make. Her hope in God's kindness is restored, and she hopes in God and hatches a risky plan. Now, what has happened to this point? There's been about three weeks gone by since. We've, we last saw them in, in scene two, chapter two, and Boaz has not made a move to purchase the land. Weeks have passed, and there's no intentions known, no sign of interest on Boaz's part. Harvest was about to end. Boaz is going to be winnowing harvested grain. The time is limited. There's this really, really sharp short time window that's left and so Naomi decides to act and so she takes initiative she hatches a plan a daring plan a, a serious plan a, a risky plan she sends Ruth to a dangerous place the threshing floor at night and it's a godly plan for a worthy woman all in God's plan. Here what we have is faith and action hand in hand. In verse one, Naomi says to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? A very significant phrase when she says seek rest. You, you see this in Lamentations 1-3 where the people of Judah are in exile. They have no resting place. Same phrase, no resting place. It's key in the Old Testament. Same word in the flood narrative. In Genesis 8 9, the, the dove returns to the ark because it's found no resting place. This is referring, this no resting place, I want to seek rest for you, is because Ruth is a widow, a foreigner in a foreign land, in a strange land, and she has no desired resting place. She does not have a secure home. She doesn't have a husband to provide for her. This reflects Naomi's words to Orpah and Ruth in chapter one when she was trying to get them to go home. And Orpah obeyed and Ruth said, no, I'm staying with you. I'm sticking with you. 
I'm clinging to you. I'm cleaving to you. She said, the Lord grant you to find rest, each one of you, in the house of her husband. She wanted them to have rest. And so now she says to Ruth, okay, you've come back with me. I need to seek rest for you. You need a refuge. I'm thinking of you. I need to have your best interests in mind here. So she seeks good for Ruth. It's a beautiful, a beautiful gesture. And she lays out a plan with, with very careful, meticulous detail. In, in verse 2, she says, Now, is not Boaz our relative? And, and you've been working with his young women in the fields. Now, he's going to be winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So she's telling her about this plan, and she's like, Oh, by the way, no prep time. You're going to do this today. Okay, tonight. Within hours. And here's what you're going to do. Verse 3, uh, wash yourself, take a bath, anoint yourself. Uh, back in those days, uh, use of scented oils on festive occasions were symbols of a good reputation. And, and she says, anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Go to that dangerous place. Go to a place you might get attacked. Now, none of, none of us parents would be telling our kids to do something like this. So it sounds strange to our ears 2019 ears uh, hear this story, and we're like, what is going on, right? This is weird. This is, this is strange. She tells her, bathe, wear your best clothes, put on perfume. Now, this may mean that she was to prepare herself like a bride getting ready for her wedding. Or it may mean, and this is what I, I think it is, is that, uh, that she was to lay aside her widow's clothes, that, to end the outward signs of mourning. She's not going to stop mourning in her heart, but that she needs to signal a return to normal activities and normal desires of life and just go on with her life. And she says, now you're going to do this and don't make yourself known to Boaz. Like, don't let him see you. Don't let him see you until after he's finished eating and drinking and when he lies down, you observe where he lies. Like, you watch him closely. You, you stay undetected. You be stealth, ninja-like. Uh, element of surprise here. It's a crazy plan. Let's see where he lies down and don't approach the wrong person in the dark. I mean, what a scandal that would have been, right? And then you go and you uncover his feet and lay down and he'll tell you what to do. Voila, there's your plan. Sounds pretty weird. The 2019 ears. You're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're not, we're not really going to do this, are we? Someone described Naomi's plan as an outrageous scheme, dangerous and delicate. Someone else said the preparations and choice of location for the encounter suggest the actions of an immoral woman. Moabites had a reputation for seducing Israelites, Numbers 25. Hosea tells us prostitutes would visit the threshing floor. But this is what you can be assured of. There's no hint of impropriety here. Everything's on the up and up. Everything's pure. And Naomi's purpose was just to get an opportunity for Ruth to talk to Boaz alone. And she's hoping for more than grain. The meal was an appropriate context to receive blessing in, in the Bible. Uh, blessings in the Bible, which the kind of blessing that, that Ruth was now going to be seeking, was bestowed on someone who had a harmonious relationship with the giver of the blessing. And so... You might remember, but in Genesis 27, Isaac doesn't give the blessing until after he eats his favorite food. 
So both sons prepare the food to ensure that Isaac was going to be in the right mood to bless. So Naomi wanted Ruth to approach Boaz at the right time when he was in a good mood to respond well to her righteous request. Like he couldn't be hangry, right? He just had to have eaten and, and getting rested and, and, and then, then hear the crazy plan. So Ruth replies in verse 5, I'll do that. I'm going to go today, tonight, all that you say I will do. Now, according to Naomi, the last move was going to belong to Boaz. He is going to tell you what you must do. So he's going to respond to Ruth's symbolic gesture with some instructions. Now, this was a strange venture, okay? It's risky. It's daring. Uh, Naomi is asking Ruth to, to go into this uncertain, compromising situation And everything's hanging in the balance. Her reputation would be on the line as well. It's made me think a lot this week as I've been thinking about how risky uh, this plan was, is how how I have risked in my faith or not. I mean, let me ask you, like, when was the last time you risked in your faith? Like, when have you taken a risk for a God-honoring proposition? Think about it. She's risking everything right now. Now, she's hatching a plan to bless Ruth. This is not a self-centered plan. This is a plan to bless Ruth. Well, let me ask you a question. You know, because we, we come up with all sorts of plans that we're scheming in our mind. How many plans right now are you, are you scheming or ble- to bless other people? Like, what are you planning right now to bless someone else? It's a good question to ask. You've been told your whole life, look out for yourself because no one else is going to. You've been told your whole life, look out for number one. Yahweh looks after his children, so if you're a believer, you're covered. You're covered right now. We're to serve his purposes. How are you planning to bless other people? What we see is that that God inspires plans uh, in those who follow him that will bless other people. God's using here human decisions as he brings about a miraculous recovery for a family that's on the verge of extinction. And this was a very serious matter in those days. And God is moving his redemption plan along. This is not just about Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. This is about Israel. This is about getting to the line of David. This is about getting us to Christ. This is a very crucial point in Israel's history here. But what we see is that faith risks. Faith acts upon God's inspiration to do something to bless someone else. So you have this risky plan for protection, really. It's really a plan for protection. And you wonder, kind of like, so so what's going to happen next, right? Well, what happens is that Ruth obeys Naomi, and she makes a bold proposal. She makes a bold proposal. So in verse 6, it just tells us, so she goes down to the threshing floor, just like her mother-in-law told her. She's obedient. She's not questioning. She just goes. In fact, it says that that her mother-in-law commanded her to do it. Like, you're going. It's what you're going to do. And so, verse 7 tells us, when when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he goes and lies down at the end of the heap of grain. Which, again, sounds kind of weird. Like, so you're camping out at the threshing floor, a place that isn't so pure. What are you doing? Well, lying beside grain was a common practice back then. It was your, it was your security system. 
Okay, you, you or someone else would, would lie down right there. So your grain was vulnerable uh, to thieves, to animals. And so he's lying down. Now here's another reason, though, that a guy like Boaz would do something like this. He's a righteous man. He's a worthy man. He's a noble man. He's a man of integrity. So Boaz quite likely was keeping watch not just to protect his grain from you know, uh, theft and, and animals, but that to keep his threshing floor from, for being used for bad purposes. Like when I'm here, nothing weird is going to happen. And so, something weird happens. <laughs> Ruth tiptoes, says she came softly. Okay, she, you, know, you know, I don't know about you, but in our house, like if somebody's walking upstairs, and you can, okay, can you stop, you know, stomping through the house, you know? Uh, she's just like tiptoeing. Doesn't want to doesn't be seen, because remember, she can't be seen. Plus, her reputation's gone if she's seen. So she comes softly and uncovers his feet and lays down. Weird. Now, this is difficult to understand, right? Well, it seems to be that this is a signal to Boaz. Okay, think about it. He's out in the night air, but he's covered up. His, his feet get uncovered, and then the cold air is going to wake him up so Ruth can speak with him. So what is she doing here? She is presenting herself as a humble petitioner asking for help, asking for protection. That's what she's doing. She's seeking help. And, and verse 8 tells us it's at midnight. In the middle of the night, startled, he turns over and, and it says, behold, a woman lay at his feet. Like, whoa, what's going on here? Uh, he uses the feminine pronoun when he asks, who are you? He knows it's a woman, but it's dark, so he doesn't know who it is. And he says, who are you? Uh, so here's this widowed Moabite daughter-in-law of Naomi, and she identifies herself this way. I am Ruth, your servant. And then she asks Boaz to spread his garment over her. Spread your wings, literally, in Hebrew, over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, Ruth had been following Naomi's instructions to a T, but here, what she's doing is she's reminding Boaz, you have the status of a redeemer. I'm asking for your protection. I'm asking for your help. Redeemer. It's a big word in the Bible. It's a big word in Ruth. It's a big word in the New Testament. Goel is the Hebrew word for redeemer. It was associated with buying property back for a family that had fallen on hard times to get the land back. It, land's very important with God's promises to Israel, and it's very important in the, the covenant promises God has made, and so the land, uh, the property, couldn't be broken from a family, and so this was to help that not happen. In Leviticus 25, verses 23 and following, it says this, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. God's saying this, the land belongs to me. And he says, you are strangers and sojourners with me. In all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor, sells part of his property, his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Get it back into the family. Now there's something else that's probably getting referred to a bit here, and we'll see it more next week because it's kind of more major in Act 4. Chapter 4, but it's a leveret marriage. 
Uh, it's in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 and following. And it says this, and you might be familiar with this custom, having read about it in the Old Testament. If, a, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Okay, this is strange to us, but this was the custom back then because the land was so important, the inheritance was so important to keep in the family because covenant promises were involved. And it says that her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. There was a duty that God put in to protect families. And it says that the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother so his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this was a very important thing. And so Ruth is mentioning the Redeemer, which would include the purchase of Elimelech's land and providing security for Naomi. You gotta keep that in mind. And what Ruth is doing here is she's taking initiative and seems to go beyond what Naomi tells her to do. And it really, I think, brings out something very beautiful in this story. They were concerned about each other. They were concerned for their welfare. Naomi was primarily concerned about Ruth and vice versa. And so Ruth just says to Boaz, look, spread the corner of your garment over me. You know what this is? Literally, virtually, it's a, it's a proposal of marriage. Ruth is saying to Boaz, marry me. I know it sounds weird, but that's what happened. Now, there was a marriage custom in those days where the, a man would symbolically take a wife by throwing a garment uh, cover over her, signifying his protection, signifying a promise to provide. So she uses this, this, uh, this term, the Hebrew term for wing or corner of garment. This would have triggered a word association the idea of the wings of refuge. Now, Boaz had already prayed earlier, and, and you see this, this is one of the key verses in all of Ruth. Chapter two, verse 12, and you look at that, and it says that may God, uh, and Boaz is praying this and blessing Ruth with it, may God reward you, may Yahweh reward you for your work under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. Like, you came to Yahweh for help. You turned to Yahweh. You're worshiping him now. If this, that was uh, recognizing, really, that you are now a worshiper of the one true God. And you've come to seek refuge under his wings. So Ruth is basically asking Boaz to answer his own prayer. There's a theological connection here between Boaz covering Ruth with the garment cover corner and Yahweh's protective covering of Ruth with his wings. Because their marriage would be how God protects Ruth. So here is God working within righteous human acts. But there's a risk. She took a huge risk. She threw it out there. No answer yet. You, you think more about risk in your own life, and you've got to ask the question, what am I willing to risk and for what? I mean, people will do all sorts of risks in life, right? I mean, small and large. I mean, and a lot of them just for fun. Hey, you know, I mean, think about it. You go to do something uh, and, and you want to do something fun, and they, they have you sign a waiver that you might die. <laughs> right? That's, that's risky. Uh, some people do it, you know, they'll do something crazy for a promotion. They'll do something crazy to have a family. Uh, people will willingly put up with all sorts of, of, of potential cost. Right? Uh, people risk their lives foolishly. They'll climb mountains, cross seas, work long hours, endure lots of pain for a lot of selfish reasons. The question really is, what, what are you willing to risk for Jesus and the gospel? 
What are you and I willing to risk for the sake of the gospel? I mean, you think about our risk aversion. You think about us not wanting to take risks often. Many times it's, it's, it's attached to this unwillingness to, to talk with others about Jesus and, and, and give the gospel to people who need it. Francis Schaeffer put it this way. He called it our guilty silence. So there's excuses we'll make, right? Like, I'm not gonna share Jesus with people. It'll cost me my friends or my reputation, or I just don't wanna go there because now I'm gonna be on the line to act, you know, godly or something. I'll never forget, in the late, late 1980s, um, God led me and a buddy to do some gospel outreach in, uh, in the city of Downey. It was, um, it was a pretty dangerous spot of the city where a lot of drug dealing was going on and there were a lot of kids living in these, these motels. In particular, this place called the Apollo Motel. And so we literally brought our Bibles and a tennis ball. That's what we had. We had our Bibles and a tennis ball and a, uh, a passion to get the gospel out in a dangerous area of the city, okay? And my buddy, uh, Marcelo Gonzalez, he, he would come with me and I remember that because it, there was just some sweet times and uh, Angela was a part of that and, and others and people came to know Christ and um, it's, it's, it's great because Marcelo now, he's been serving in the 1040 window in the world uh, for the last 30 years. He, he's got a, a, a mission in Bolivia, he's in the Middle East, you know, he's in Mexico, near Mexico City, he's all over the place. Um, and I think about the boldness of risk uh, that he would take to get the gospel out. It's encouraging. You know, I think about, it's Christmas, right? Christmas season, and you're gonna be going to all these gatherings. You're going to family parties and what have you, and the question you gotta ask yourself is, what kind of conversations am I gonna have with the people that I gather with? And I just went to a family gathering yesterday, and I was thinking a lot about this kind of idea, and, I'm, and I remember when I was a brand new believer, I would go to family gatherings at Christmas and try to get everybody saved. And I'd be like cornering cousins, you know, and saying, you need to hear this right now. And, and then as time went on, that would kind of cool down a little bit. And maybe I got a bit wiser in how I spoke. But there are plenty of times when I just didn't even think about it, right? And so I was praying yesterday about, like, I got to be kind and inquisitive, ask them some good questions and be wise. They're sensitive to their situation. But also be courageous and also want to be biblical and actually share the gospel. The question you gotta ask yourself is, what, what risk would I take to affect someone's eternity for Jesus and the gospel? Like, what risk am I willing to take on that? And what, what risk, if you think about that, what risk might God be wanting you to take? Like, you, like, tonight or tomorrow? I mean, think about this. You know, we always say, well, there's 16 days left in the year, which is true. Well, there's 16 days left in the decade. Well, that's kind of more weighty, right? We're going into 2020. So make the most of the time. Redeem the time for Jesus and the gospel in these last 16 days of the decade. Ooh, you know. Faith takes action. You see, Naomi, she's doing this risky plan, right? Just a risky plan for protection. But Ruth does the bold proposal. She goes and carries out the plan. She does this. And what, you, what it leads to, because we're waiting like, what's Boaz going to do, right? What's Boaz going to say? Well, what we see is a very gracious response. 
just really, really gracious. A, a promise gets made. Boaz promises redemption. He says in verse 10, may you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. He, he just uses sweet words and strong words. And he says, the last the last kindness here is greater than the first one. Well, the first one is that she had said, I'm going to stick with Naomi. I'm going to stay with my mother-in-law. I'm going to go to a foreign country and be, remember in this, in this book, she's called Ruth the Moabitess all the time. She's always getting reminded of where she came from. But he says, no, this is what you've done now. It's, it's even greater. What she do? Well, she didn't go after young men. Uh, he's older. Boaz is older. Um, he's praising her conduct. The first deed of loyalty, stick with Naomi. She did it. Second deed of loyalty, approach Boaz, not just as a marriage partner, but as a redeemer. Why is that important? Because as a redeemer, he would provide security for, get this, Naomi. She's thinking first of Naomi here, not herself. We are so attuned, are we not, to think about us first. But for her, the first priority was always Naomi. So he says to her, my daughter, do not fear. Now, there's a lot of things she could have been afraid of, right? Like, how is Boaz going to respond, first and foremost, in that moment? You know, the dangerous, how, how am I going to be treated by others if someone sees me here? Uh, what's going to happen to my reputation if someone sees me here? Uh, she's probably fearing uh, her economic future. Like, what am I going to do in life? How is this going to go? And then, you know, fear of not having kids, like not uh, continuing on the family line. But this is where, as you wait for it, you go, wow, praise God. What's the response from Boaz? He says, I'm going to do everything you ask. Well, that's, that's interesting because Naomi had said, he's going to tell you what to do. And very graciously, he says, I'm going to do everything you want. Basically, name it. This is, this is magnanimous grace. This is a promised redemption. And what's the reason why he gives her this answer? This is also very significant. It's, it's this. He, he gives the reason. He says, because, I'm going to do this, because all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Her reputation she was noble. She was of high integrity. He uses a very strange expression here, and he says that, that in the gate of my people, literally all the gate of my people, you know, it translates as all my fellow townsmen, but it's really all the gate of my people in Hebrew. All the gate of my people know that you are a worthy woman. The gate was a center where people established um, their judgments. They assembled, and he's saying all the assembly of the people, all the elders in my town, they know your exemplary character. You've earned it by, and had a good reputation. This is just over several months. They've only known her for several months. Boaz is telling Ruth, you are highly regarded. You are a worthy woman. You are a woman of noble character. You are a virtuous woman. You know, the, there's only one other place in the Bible that this phrase, worthy woman, is used. And it's in Proverbs 31. And in the Hebrew Bible, Proverbs comes right before Ruth. Ruth is the embodiment, the, the illustration of the Proverbs 31 woman. And how did she build this reputation? How do you get a reputation like that in several months? Well, let's go back to uh, what many of us have been taught wrongly. 
Uh, think, look out for yourself, protect yourself, do right by, for yourself because no one else can look out for you. She didn't. She didn't push herself up to the front. Uh, she made herself Naomi's servant. And she worked without complaint in the heat of the harvest, all to help her mother-in-law survive. See, humble devotion to duty does not go unnoticed. You might think it does sometimes. You might think, no one notices what I do. No one notices how I serve. God does. And here Boaz is declaring her praiseworthy and praises Yahweh. He's praying to God when he says this. Because God's behind this episode. God's behind this story. And, And God blesses human kindness. In Hebrews 6, in verse 10, it says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. And here's Naomi with renewed hope, taking positive steps for the family's future. And here's Ruth just going, I'm going to do this. I believe Yahweh. Uh, he's the one who's made me a woman of excellence. Uh, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to honor Naomi, and I'm going I'm to do what she says. But here's the thing. The impact of a godly woman is immense on a family. You think about the impact of of Ruth upon this family. It was huge. So this is a sweet story, isn't it? It's just a sweet story. I love the way it just keeps going. Then you get to verse 12, and you're like, now, in any good story, there's always like a crisis, right? Here's your crisis. Here it it comes. Here's the crisis point in the story of Ruth. Now, you go, but wait, we've had a lot of crises already. Yeah, this is the big one. This is the big one. It's a complication to the plan. And in the Hebrew, it it comes out this way, but you don't really know it's happening unless you're looking at the Hebrew, but Boaz hesitates. He literally hesitates, and he introduces tension into the narrative. Literally, he takes, one, one writer said, he uses five useless words. Like the words he uses, he's like stammering. He's like, um, uh, there's a problem. He says in verse 12, uh, yes, it's true, I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than me. Problem. Um, there's another closer relative that needs to be permitted to exercise his rights and responsibility first. So, so just as wedding bells seem to uh, be about to go off, Boaz reveals the unexpected. Wait a minute, Ruth. Wait a minute. Now, this might be why Boaz had made no attempt to secure the land or redeem Ruth. He knew there, were, uh, there was another kinsman redeemer closer. But he says to her in verse 13, you remain till the morning because if you leave now, everyone's gonna think you're immoral, basically. He cares about Ruth. He's a man of integrity. And he says, I'm, if this man will redeem you, great. Uh, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. He promises Ruth. He's like, you are covered either way. I realize you don't know who is going to be taking care of you, who's going to be your husband. I know it's just strange. The whole thing is strange to us. But you got to think in the mindset of, of back then. The worst curse that you could put on someone is to say, may your family be desolate. May your line be cut off. May your name be forgotten. And so Boaz is saying, I'm promising redemption for you. The line will continue. He's doing this for a widow. 
he's going to be redeeming a Moabite Far removed from the law, really, if you think about it. Boaz doesn't care about that. He's like, there's a relative in distress. I'm going to make sure this relative is taken care of. It's what you do for family. So Boaz is the model of integrity. He's the kind of ancestor from which a David might descend. So there's this obstacle, you know, uh, in the work of God's providence, in the situation, if Ruth and Boaz marry, God has to be responsible for it. There, there is no way they could overcome this obstacle. And so he tells her, just stay here till the morning. And so she gets up before anyone can recognize anyone. And he says, don't let it be known that you came here to the threshing floor. He doesn't want gossip to infect Bethlehem. Uh, the suggestion of inappropriate behavior would ruin rest, Ruth's reputation. So he sends her back before daylight. He doesn't want to start a scandal. And he says, and by the way, I'm going to send you home with a lot of grain. He's offering security and hope to a vulnerable relative. This was the important function of a kinsman redeemer. Um, this is what God promises his people. Isaiah 41, God, the divine redeemer, uh, I, Yahweh, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, do not be afraid, I will help you. Do not be afraid, I will help you, says Yahweh, your redeemer, the holy one of Israel. So Boaz is, is displaying God's covenant kindness here. He's accepting his role as the wings of Yahweh. You, you can just see the hidden hand of God guiding the actions of, of each person in this story. And so Ruth goes back to Naomi and recounts what happened. And interesting what happens in verse 16, she comes back to her mother-in-law and, and Naomi says, how did you fare, my daughter? Like, you know, how, you, know you read it like, how did it go? But literally, here's what it says. Who are you, my daughter? Literally, uh, not how did it go, but who are you now? Because she wants to know. She's wondering, has your identity changed? Has Boaz given you, a foreign widow, a new identity? And she tells her what happens. In verse 18, she goes, look, just wait. He is, he is going to settle this today. You're not going to have to wait long to figure it out. He's going to settle a matter quickly. So here you have this, I mean, really unbelievable response from Boaz. I mean, he doesn't reject her. He doesn't take advantage of her. This, God is just governing his response to provide for this family. Again, this continues the line to David and ultimately to Christ. But I just love how it ends. I love how this chapter ends, how this scene, uh, these scenes and this, this, this uh, act ends. It's in suspense. You, you know, we know the rest of the story. They didn't. At this point in time, they didn't know what was going to happen next. God knew and we know now. But faith takes action. Faith risks. This is, this is significant. It's very significant. Next week, we're going to you know, finish Ruth, and we're going to see that all of this points to a, a royal genealogy that drives Ruth. Like, Ruth was written to get to the genealogy at the end. And we're in the realm of divine providence here. And, and the question is, why did they all do this? Why did Naomi do what she did? What did why did Ruth do what she did? Why did Boaz ha respond the way he did? And it's very significant for us. What Naomi did in hatching the plan, and what Ruth did in making the proposal, and what Boaz did in making the promise, was all based on God's word regarding kinsmen, redeemers. This is very significant. On the basis of the word of God, Naomi hatched the plan. 
on the basis of the word of God, Ruth proposed marriage. On the basis of the word of God, Boaz promises redemption. God had laid it out. And there's something here for us about how faith gets put into action as we adhere to the word of God. They, they were doing what was right in God's sight. They, they were risking as they were resting on God's word. I mean, are, are you making plans anchored on God's word or aligned with your own mind? I mean, think about what you want to do in life and if you want to be wise and please God and you've got to know the word of God so you can be set free by the truth. You've got to do what it says to be wise and to please God. And you think about what God has given us in his word. Macro truths to make micro decisions upon. So you stick to the word of God because it reveals the son of God. It reveals the glory of Christ. It reveals God's ways. It reveals God's will. You shouldn't be taking risks based on figments of your imagination. That's foolish. You should take risks based on the faithful word of God. And I, but I think it is fair to ask, what's God really doing here? We, we began to bring it out a bit, but think about it. This is... This is revealing the sovereign hand of God. Uh, in chapter one, it's over natural events like a, a famine. God extraordinarily provides and kindness. And then you have chance events in chapter two and God providentially provides. And then you've got a risky human scheme in chapter three and redemption results. This is big. This is ultimately, and you gotta, take, you gotta keep the picture, the big picture not just of Ruth, not just of the Old Testament, but the whole Bible in mind as you're going through Ruth. Redemption results according to the word of God, according to God's promises. What is God doing? God is in process of restoring the tragically broken relationship with humanity. It started with Adam and Eve in the garden. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden because they revolted against God. They dismissed his word. They disregarded his warnings. They said that's irrelevant. They lost their co-regency with God. It led to the Tower of Babel, which typifies every human you know, enterprise that basically says we're going to exalt man over God. That, that we're going to govern ourselves without God, in defiance of him. This is the world system. But God is committed to his original plan. And it's not going to end until he says it's time. Think about it. By the time of the judges, humanity just once again devolved into this chaos Determined to get their own way. This is like Genesis 11. This is like Babel. There's a stark reminder of how bad and how twisted human sinful nature is. Everyone doing right in their own eyes. And in that dark valley, God committed to his eternal plan. A dim as it seemed at the moment, he was moving it along. There was a remnant that reverenced him. Think about it. Boaz has promised redemption. That mirrors God's redemptive promises. This reminds us of God's redemptive promises because long before Boaz and Ruth, God promised a redeemer. In Genesis 3.15, a head-crushing serpent killer, one over whom God would have ultimate victory. It would be full, it would be final, they would free his people from sin and Satan. So what is God doing here in Ruth? He's continuing the plan that he set in motion before the world began. And in his perfect time, he saw the fulfillment, the 
promised Messiah, the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. God has had his hand on this little town of Bethlehem for a long time. And and then, at the birth of Christ, he did it through another unlikely person, Mary, chosen by God. She acted upon the word of God. Uh, She risked her reputation uh, for promised redemption because faith acts on the word of God. And we see this in this suspenseful ending of Ruth 3. You see Ruth waiting, just waiting for the answer. Redemption was promised, redemption's secured really, and, and biblically it's for all who will heed the word of God and respond in praise and trust and obedience to God. Uh, Ruth was waiting, Mary was waiting, and we today are waiting. They were waiting for Jesus' first coming. We, we, we await his return. Come Lord Jesus, right? Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can even wait for your final redemption, the return of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that in in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of your grace. Thank you, Lord, that faith risks and acts upon your word. Lord, we are waiting for Jesus, raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Thank you that our covenant hope is anchored in Christ who will redeem all who trust in him. And we pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.